Hello, it's Jack Tutor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Oren Ambachi, a musician that I've been listening to and enjoying for quite a few years now. Basically, if there's a new release that comes out that has Oren's name on it, whether or not it's a solo work or a collaboration or, you know, a work by one of the many bands that he's in, like Grave Temple or Nazar and I, then I'll check it out. I'll know there'll be something in there for me because there's something about Oren's decision-making on those records that really tallies with what I want to hear. He's got this signature that I've come to absolutely adore, this really crystalline, prismic approach to her guitar harmonics. It just sounds kind of alien, almost sci-fi and right-angled. It's really striking. And... His solo records, say, since Audience of One, have gradually ramped up in intensity, I suppose you could say. Reaching a climactic point with Hubris back in 2016, which ends with this hugely collaborative freakout of rhythm, clacking, percussion, guitar harmonics, it just reaches a point of insanity and stays there for far too long. (laughs) It's amazing. So it made it surprising to hear his most recent album on Editions Mago, Simeon Angel, and have the first texture be this watery drone that immediately sets the tone as something very different. It's like having a raindrop and tilting it around a pane of glass. He worked in collaboration with Ciro Baptista, the Brazilian percussionist, who brings this rolling, momentous energy to the record, but it stays within this state of comparative tranquility, especially when compared to something like Hubris or Sagittarian Domain. It's a really beautiful record. Please head over to oranambachi.com for all his updates. He's also on Twitter as well. And you can go to attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening for more information on Oran's picks and links to his music as well. All right, let's do it. This was a really great conversation. I was super honored to be able to speak to Oran after years of loving his work. Please enjoy Oran Ambachi on Crucial Listening. Welcome to Crucial Listening. Hey, Jack. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. So you have brought three important records to the table. You've also recently released a new album, Simeon Angel, which uh, features percussionist Ciro Baptista. Um, Mm -hmm. I'd love to know, to begin with, I mean, how did this collaboration with Ciro come about? How did you end up meeting him? Well, um, I'd played with him in the 90s uh, at a John Zorn concert. And uh, I worked with with Mr. Zorn a number of times when I was in New York. And he he does this thing, which is kind of like Derek Bailey's company week, where he'll pick a bunch of people and probably, you know, eight to ten different musicians. And trying to remember where the venue, I think it was at the Knitting Factory. And um, one of the musicians was Ciro. And uh, honestly, I don't even think we played together. We probably played in a in like a group thing with everybody but it, it's usually those sorts of sort of situations are usually duos trios kind of thing and um i don't think i did any duos or anything like that with Ciro, but that's where we met a long long time ago and um i've seen him play over the years and i i love 
especially the uh, duo record that he made with Derek Bailey. Back in the day, I think it was the first Inca CD that came out on Derek Bailey's label. And something about it is so kind of joyous and off the wall, just the Brazilian weirdness, you know, there's just a really strange (laughs) kind of um, humorous, joyous sort of vibe to, to a lot of Brazilian percussion in particular. So that was really appealing. And um, I've always loved that record. And I had this sort of fantasy in my head to do something where, I mean, the last 10 years or so, I've had a lot of rhythmical elements in my records. I'm originally a drummer, so that that really interests me, has always interested me, but it seems to be more prominent now, that sort of exploration of having rhythmical elements with kind of textural elements or, you know, abstract elements that having these two things kind of juxtaposed. And um, every time I finish a record it's kind of like a huge weight off my shoulders and then sort of starting a new one a year later or two years later, I'm always like, Oh, what the hell am I going to do now? You know, (laughs) I I don't want to repeat myself and I kind of want to make it, you know, I don't know if better is the right word, but just, I just want to always explore new territory. And I was really baffled about what to do. And talking to a lot of my colleagues and, you know, just about, bouncing ideas off one another and one thing i played a show in melbourne and it was just a solo guitar show and when i finished a very close friend of mine and a close collaborator joe talia sort of said to me dude why don't you just make that your next record (laughs) it was like (laughs) the most obvious simple thing that would just did not occur to me at all like oh i could just play guitar (laughs) on my own you know (laughs) So that was kind of the the initial idea for the record. But I've always had this fantasy. Um, I love uh, Nana Vasconcelos, the Brazilian percussionist who worked with loads of people, Egberto Gismonti, and, you know, he made a lot of records in Brazil, and then he was in the U.S. doing a lot of stuff. And I discovered his work from listening to a lot of ECM records as a teenager and a lot of the work he did with the Pat Metheny group or with Pat Metheny and Lyle Mays was absolutely pivotal for me when I was 14. Um, you know, I thought it was kind of like, I remember sitting around with my friends thinking, Oh, this is like Pink Floyd, but it's more <laughs> stranger or, or more jazzy <laughs> or something. <laughs> and it was just really appealing. And, and a lot of the weirdness, a lot of the strangeness in those records was from Nana Vasconcelos, his contribution. And then I heard the work he did with Don Cherry and, and Colin Walcott in Cadona and just really kind of, and he made a solo record on ECM that's really strange. So I kind of um had this fantasy of having my guitar stuff sort of juxtaposed with that sort of a thing. And... I was like, who could do this? And then, of course, Ciro, like Ciro's the guy, like who is the master of Brazilian percussion and he works in a lot of really open contexts. So I tried to get a hold of him and he was very elusive and never checked his email. And <laughs> and then I, I was having a, a, a ramen meal with Okyung Lee in New York and I'd already, it was kind of, kind of a desperate situation where I don't have a studio. So somehow I'll find the money to book a studio for a day. And I booked a studio in New York with Randall Dunn, who's a great engineer who I've worked with a lot. Mm. We had the date booked and I really had this thing in my head. Oh, I'm only in New York for four days. I've got to record with Ciro the day before I record with Randall. How the hell am I going to do this? He's not <laughs> answering. And this is like a saga that was going on for months. And I had kind of given up on the idea. And I was sitting with Okyung having a ramen two days before my session with Randall. And I mentioned it to her really in passing. It wasn't even like a subject that I wanted to bring up. And she just went, oh, I'll just call him, you know, and she just called him (laughs) or she called John Zorn. I don't remember what happened, but she called basically, you know, two hours later, the session was booked. And yeah, I found myself going to Ciro's house in New Jersey 
and and recording with him a couple of days later. And it was super fun and he was lovely and we had a ball. So, and then, you know, I, I looked on the wall and he had a photo of him and none of us Goncelos. I was like, okay. Wow. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Yeah. And then I hadn't even realized that they had a project together in New York and they were like, you know, Cyril was almost like the next, you know, protege of Nanas. So they were very close. So it was like totally tapping into what I kind of the, the source in a way, what, where I wanted to go. That was a long answer. That was a great answer. And you've ticked off about three other questions that I wanted to ask. That was fabulous. Ah, okay. So you mentioned that. So Joe Talia said to you, right, you need to center your next record around that live performance you did in melbourne and yeah. then you got zero involved mm-hmm. how much did your perception of what the record would be change when you got in the studio with zero and started making music it always changes it's it's <laughs> kind of um <clears throat> it's kind of like just recording the bones of what you know giving myself a whole lot of options that i can work with later so i recorded a whole lot of stuff with him and then with Randall, the next day, I think we just looped a few things of Ciro's and I played over them. And I did three takes, three guitar takes, improvising over what Ciro did. And then I didn't listen to it for about five months. <laughs> I just <laughs> wanted to, It was kind of a bit overwhelming. There's a lot of material. And that's kind of where the work begins in a way, where you sort of go through everything and try and sort of piece together something. And I just didn't want it to sound like me just interacting with Ciro in a more, you know, improvised way or whatever. I wanted it to be something different. So months later in Berlin, uh, I got together with my friend Jörg Hiller, who also goes by the name of Konrad Sprenger. And we started uh, editing all the material and one thing led to another and it sort of, we just shaped it into the two pieces that are on the record and they they're very different i mean in some ways they're very different to what what i did with zero at the time but in other ways they're really really similar i think i just needed space from the material i found a video of my phone um two videos one that i took of zero and exactly what i'd taken on the phone is is exactly what's on the record i was surprised and then Randall took a video of me playing in the studio when I was doing a take, and that's also on the record. So it is really connected to to what we did at the time. But but on the other hand, yeah, it's been kind of crafted and shaped into into different pieces. I was really surprised the moment that I pressed play. I think I have been plugged into your work probably since around Audience of One. And mm-hmm. I've heard things kind of come to what felt to me like a intensity peak with the end of Hubris. So mm-hmm. to hear Simon Angel begin how it did and also just to unfold how it did as well felt, I mean, certainly with Hubris, I did think, well, where do you go in terms of intensity after this point? I mean, what was it that changed if there was anything in particular that made you go to this more... I guess, less intense in a traditional sense, you know, less loud, I suppose you could say, bluntly, kind yeah. of territory. I kind of, um, I just didn't want to do Hubris Part 2. Right. <laughs> um, I kind of, it, it was done. I did it. And also, I really didn't want to have this insane, like Hubris had 80 guitars on Hubris Part <laughs> 1, you know. <laughs> and I just didn't want to have this insanely epic, you know, thing with loads of people. And I really wanted to, I mean, when Joe made that comment to me about my solo show, I thought, yeah, I really want to make a simple record. I always say that hubris was supposed to be a really simple record as well. (laughs) It really was. And it never, it never really goes that way, but it doesn't matter. It's just more just this sort of catalyst to, to do something different. And yeah, all I needed was Joe to tell me that at that show and, and, a lot of the stuff that I was exploring live, um, I think I consciously stopped playing really distorted, noisy guitar stuff live in my solo shows, which I was doing for quite a while. And mm. I, I just said, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to bring a fuzz pedal anymore to these gigs, you know. And I just forced myself 
to go into a different area. And um, yeah, a lot of the guitar playing on, on Simeon Angel is really reflective of what I've been doing live in my solo shows, which is definitely more more chill in a way, but kind of stranger as well. Like I'm really inspired by people like David Berman and that kind of world. And I guess I'm trying to sort of that and, and sort of Indian music as well and, and that sort of exploration. So I'm sort of trying to go into that area with the tools that I have. I really love the album art when listening to this record as well. It was funny. Mm-hmm. I couldn't remember if I'd seen it or if I was just picturing what I thought it should be like. But yeah. when I looked at it, I was like, yes, because mm-hmm. there's such a focus on the horizontal lines. And that's exactly what comes to mind when I listen to this, this sort of band of material sort of dragged across the middle of space. Mm-hmm. I understand it was a photo taken by Trianus Pacquiaofakis. Yeah. yeah. Yes, yes. So how did the artwork come to be? He's Trianus is an old friend of mine who I met in Sydney. Well, actually, no, I met him in Perth. He was this young young uh, guy that was really into experimental music, and I think he was 18, and he flew me and this other electronic artist, Pimon, from Melbourne, uh, from Sydney, to Perth to play a show, and that's how I met this guy. And, um, yeah, it turns out he was a, a photographer, and he's done a lot of my, a lot of the, the photos on many of my projects, uh, the Live Knots record on Pan. I think he was working with Bill, uh, at Pan for a while, doing a lot of those covers. Ah, cool. And um, <clears throat> a lot of the Black Truffle covers he's done as well. Um, I just love his work. He's a really sweet guy. And he basically gives me folders of photos and says, anything you want to use, go for it, you know, which is <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> wow. And I saw that photo, yeah, the tennis court, and I just loved it. And as soon as I saw it, I just thought, this is the one, you know? Hmm. I also just like things to be kind of like confusing and not obvious, you know? It's kind of related to what I want to do musically. I don't want to hit people over the head with an idea. I want things to be, I don't know, subtly tense or subtly strange. And hopefully you can discover all these nuances the more you listen to something. So... I just liked the the atmosphere of that photo. I thought it worked really well. Well, it's a, a really wonderful record. I've been really enjoying it. Thank is, you. Is there a best place for people to head if they want to find out more info about Simeon Angel? Ooh, I don't know. Probably to the Editions Mego site. There's some information on it on there, I guess. And you could probably listen to an excerpt as well. Great. So... Let's go to your important records now, so I can remind you what you picked. Because uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> okay. uh, so we've got Annette Peacock, Extremes. Got yep. Pat Metheny, Off Ramp. Mm-hmm. And we've got Godly and Cream, Freeze Frame. Okay. So <laughs> um, usually at this point, I ask whether there was a particular interpretation of the term important that you use to come up with this list of records i don't know whether there was any kind of unifying idea between these picks that you can think of or was it just what was on the top of your head yeah well with these sorts of things i love reading other people's lists i always did that when i was (laughs) growing up and you know if there was someone that i admired i'd love to see what they're what they're into what they're listening to connecting the dots all that kind of thing you know, and I would buy, you know, everything on someone's list <laughs> that I admired. <laughs> the thing with me is I hate doing it myself because it's <laughs> so torturous. I'm so passionate about many, many, many different releases. So the idea of compiling a list is really, you know, stressful. <laughs> <laughs> and I think maybe with these three, it was a random thing that I that I picked really quickly. And I guess they're things that probably inform things that I heard that when I was younger, but sort of inform what I'm doing at the moment, maybe. For example, like the Pat Metheny group off-ramp um, is absolutely connected to Simeon Angel, for sure. Should I talk about that record? Let's go for it, yeah. Okay. So that's that's one of those records that had none of us concellos on percussion, which I spoke about earlier. 
And I think I got that record when I was 13, 14. And um, something about that record, I don't think the, I don't think it's a masterpiece. I think there's one or two tracks that, you know, I'm not super into. But I've played that record a thousand times, you know, easily. And um, something about the atmosphere of that record is really, really odd. And and there's just it's got such a beautiful sound, and it's very lush and kind of blurry, which I really like. And um, mm. Nana's uh, contribution to that record is really odd as well. Like his does these strange vocal screams in the background, and this is a lot of really beautiful things going on it's a beautiful record so i just found myself the last five to ten years really kind of revisiting things that i was obsessed with growing up that were quite formative and that's definitely one of those records which really led to a lot of different things from that point so this one came out i think in 1982 yeah yeah and i was 13 in 1982 so yeah i think i probably bought it when i was 13 or 14 wow <laughs> so it's quite a uh, intense pick for someone at age 13 14 is that reflective of the kind of thing you were listening to at that time it is because i was i remember um when i was in year seven i well before year seven i was really really into rock music obviously um growing up and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, seven and, uh, being like what, age twelve or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, I already had a really pretty hefty collection of rock records. I was already absolutely obsessed with Hendrix. I probably had, you know, forty to fifty Hendrix records, bootlegs, all kinds of stuff. And I remember just really being intrigued by you know the weird things on those records, like the track and the gods made love the first track from electric ladyland now you know we listen to it and it's basically a music concrete piece you know but mm. at the time it was just on a record you know on a pop record and it was all everything was like valid you know the the songs and the weird stuff so but i remember making cassettes of just all those weird things on records like the weird thing on a pink floyd record between the songs or you know <clears throat> Beatles stuff and just lots of things like that. I was always really fascinated by it. Um, but because I was really into Hendrix and I was I was kind of learning dr to play drums, like copying records, trying to play. I, I loved the way Mitch Mitchell played Hendrix's drummer, and it was very jazzy. And I I didn't really know much about jazz, but <clears throat> I thought, okay, what, what who was Mitch Mitchell listening to? And I found out that he was emulating this guy called Elvin Jones. I was like, okay, <laughs> I should check some Elvin Jones out. And then I read that Hendrix was really into John Coltrane and Ornette Coleman. So I went into a record store after school and I said to the guy working there, do you have any Elvin Jones? Or, and he said, oh, the only Elvin Jones we have is on a John Coltrane record. And I went, what? <laughs> Elvin Jones worked with John Coltrane? He's like, yeah, he was his drummer. Oh, so I, I went and bought uh, the Impulse record, Coltrane. And it was the first John Coltrane record I bought. And absolutely played the shit out of it. Became completely infatuated. And soon after that, sold almost all of my rock records and bought as many impulse well as many coltrane records as possible which led to albert eiler and cecil taylor and all that sort of stuff nice so i was really into that but <clears throat> also i really got into ecm records at the same time there was a thing with ecm where it was kind of i mean it was really it's a really varied label you know there's so many diverse things on on ecm but something about it hearing Records like John Abercrombie, Gateway, and things like that connected to the rock thing that I loved, but it was really exploratory, very, very different. And yeah, one of those things was hearing the off-ramp, one of my early ECM purchases for sure. So yeah, I think I, I was telling my partner last night that I, I think when I was 14, 15, I tried to buy the whole catalog you know i just became completely completely obsessed with ecm 
and now um yeah the last few years i'm just totally embracing that that aspect of my childhood in a way it's all coming out in in, a, in kind of wonky weird ways in my music yeah so you make reference to the fact that it's got quite a prominent presence with regards to Simeon and Angel and the press release itself makes reference to his guitar synth as well mm-hmm. as being a reference yep. point I mean is that a connection as well that you you draw yourself is that uh, uh, an influence that you're pulling from there a little mm, more in an abstract way I think it's more the feeling of that stuff or it, a lot of this stuff is almost like a memory of what it was in my head you know but it's not necessarily me articulating that stuff well i can't really play like that you know it's not my right. um, <laughs> that's just a different way of playing but it's more this weird it's almost like a blurry memory of something that you heard when you were really young and then it kind of mutates in your head over the years you might not necessarily listen to it but it's this sort of feeling that kind of permeated your headspace when you heard it and and kind of what it did to you. And maybe the records that I'm making lately have that atmosphere and maybe it's all in my own head. You know what I mean? <laughs> no one else would pick up on it. <laughs> yeah. That's quite possible. Cause a lot of times I'll, I'll hear something and it'll absolutely, you know, it could be 10 seconds of music and it'll absolutely push me into making a whole album, you know, and, and, it's just a catalyst, you know, uh, it could just be 10 seconds of music or what I, th- what I remember a record sounding like, you know, and trying to sort of reach for that, that vibe. And it is a very personal thing. I think it's very obvious. Speaking of the, the vibe, I also read something about Jim O'Rourke playing a particularly cheesy solo on Hubris yeah. and you both yes. laughing about it at the time. I mean, is do you think, a sense of like uh, humorous absurdity is is a part of of what connects you with this music as well. Oh yeah, I mean a lot <laughs> of it's a lot of it's kind of like pushing like yeah that for sure when we did that when Jim did that guitar solo and also the project I have with with Castle Jaeger and James Rushford uh, we've made two records FaceTime and uh, Pale Calling and it's kind of I like that where you're sort of working with somebody and you go into areas that are really kind of, (laughs) should we be doing this? This is really (laughs) cheesy or, you know, this is really silly, you know, come on, you know, but I like egging, you know, egging the other person on to just go there. And I remember when Jim did that solo, he's totally emulating that kind of ECM guitar thing, you know, the ECM guitar synth sound. And he's very, much like me in the sense that we grew up with that stuff and we're both really, really passionate about it, but it doesn't mean you necessarily play it, you know? (laughs) Um, but yeah, when we were recording that and he was just fooling around, you know, it was recording, but it was literally, he literally just grabbed the guitar and started doing that. And, and we were like, he did a phrase we'd laugh. Then he'd do another one and we'd laugh even more. (laughs) And, and I said to him, I said, you know, this is going on the record, you know, and he was just like, no, no, it's not. I'm just fucking around, you know, but, but it did, you know, because it was perfect. And you make reference to the fact that there are, you know, some tracks that don't work on this record for you and some that do. What are the ones mm-hmm. that really work for you on this record? I think all of side one on off ramp mm. absolutely works. It's just incredible. Um, yeah. <laughs> side one is side one is the shit you know um the first track is so strange it's so odd and it's unresolved and then the second track is you know it, the second track's kind of like the hit the hit track are you going with me um hmm. and just the way it unfolds his guitar solo it's just it's so over the top kind of emotional and you know kind of ridiculous but i just love that about it and then the last track Orlay, has this it does have this kind of cheesy french breezy yeah. vibe but it's also very strange and a lot of that is the none of us Conchellus contribution um 
It's really, really understated as well. Is that his I voice love... on that? Or... It is. Oh, yeah, wow. it is. I love the just the atmosphere of that track. It's just so, so incredible. There are a couple of tracks on side two. Like one, one track on side two sounds like it could be the beginning of Friends or like an American TV show, <laughs> you know, theme. I could live without that one, you know. Oh, I but, know the exact one you mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I still love that record. I don't skip any of the tracks. It's it's just, yeah, one of my faves. Yeah, Olay is the one that really connected with me as well. I ended up just playing that one over and over again when uh, I came to it the first time I listened. Um, mm-hmm. the, yeah, the voices, I think, for, for me are the bit that make it kind of... Um, still quite cheesy but haunting is such a i've used word but that's what it felt like for me yeah. <laughs> just those echoes it's really really quite it's true. fantastic and yeah. there's also really great things like just none of us conchellas playing uh brazilian percussion over like a, a drum machine or just a really simple kind of almost like a click you know mm. um and just how he's playing with that where yeah there's this there's this technology thing, like Matheny's using a Sinclavier. It's like super high-end technology for the time, but mixing with, like, voice and, you know, really kind of primitive, so to speak, uh, percussion, you know, instruments. And those two worlds sort of colliding, and I love I love things like that. That's also, on Simeon Angel, this idea of, you know, this human thing with this really kind of alien ambient kind of electronic thing like those two things juxtaposed yeah i love you know john hassel's first record on lovely music i think it's called vernal equinox um that was also an initial inspiration for sure Go to your second record now, or if you uh, you can either go for Annette Peacock or Godly and Cream. I'll let you choose. I'll probably go for Annette because the Annette Peacock, um, the whole thing is insanely <laughs> great. But um, there's one track in particular which was definitely um, a big inspiration for Hubris Part Three, and I think it's the track "Real and Defined Androgens." Aha! Is that the correct title? I thought you might say title? that one. Yeah. Yeah. And what was it about that track that informed Hubris? The insanity of that track where <laughs> it just, the idea of, of um, this sort of progression where it's just everybody, the whole band sitting on a chord and then going up to a tone to a chord and then back down and back up and back down. And back, yeah, it's you know. basically the same progression, isn't it, in a, in a way? It it's is. Hubris. Wow. It is. Yeah. And I told her that. I hung out with her and... I said I, I stole your you know, I stole <laughs> real and defined androgens on my new record, and she just said, "Oh, that's great. That's is that there's only two chords, you know, because <laughs> she's, you know, her, a lot of her music's really quite complex, you know, and for her that's probably a really raunchy, basic kind of thing. She also told me that track was really big in in uh, S and M clubs in in Europe in the wow. 80s. Yeah. But this, yeah, there's something about that track where it is this kind of collective uh, frenzy, you know, but and it just keeps building and building. But at the same time, they're kind of holding back. Like there's still this tension that just doesn't let up. And <clears throat> I really love that about that track. It's just genius. Yeah. So that was a big, big, big inspiration for Hubris Part 3, for sure. And how did you come to meet Annette? She played some shows in Europe two or three years ago. And um, I don't remember how it happened, but she invited me and put me on the guest list and, yeah, invited me to meet her after the show. And that was in Italy, in Modena. And then she invited 
me to see her play in Paris. So we hung out there as well after her show, which was really, really thrilling for me. And I was sweating bullets, literally sweating bullets. (laughs) (laughs) Because I've been, I discovered her stuff also around the age of 13 because she, um, she played on Bill, a Bill Bruford record called Feels Good to Me. Um, she was the singer on a lot of the tracks on that record. And um, I had that record and I had a video of them playing, I think, at, for the BBC. There was like a, a TV thing and I had a video of that, like a copy of a copy of a copy that I used to watch all the time. And primarily because I loved Alan Holdsworth and he was the guitar player on that record. And... Um, I saw this video. I was like, who is this strange woman? You know, um, really very sexy, but very cold, you know, and kind of aloof and something about it really appealed to me. And then, you know, I, I, I had, <clears throat> I realized that I had a Paul Blay record and she was on that record with Hun Benek and she was Paul Blay's partner for quite some time. And, and obviously Gary Peacock as well, who mm. worked with, Albert Eiler in the early days and then Keith Jarrett and, you know, lots of ECM related stuff too. So a lot of, a lot of the jazz records I had growing up were, had her material on them because Paul Blay kind of exclusively played her stuff for quite some time. So I had a lot of her stuff without even realizing it, you know, Hmm. and then much later I heard X dreams and the perfect release and a lot of those records. But Extremes, yeah, that's the one for me, I would say. The the cover of Don't Be Cruel, Elvis, Elvis Presley, is genius. Mm. Have you had a chance to listen to that record? Yes, I have. Yeah, I gave it a few lessons on holiday just recently. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the, the, so I don't have many reference points for things like this, but mm-hmm. the one that came to mind for me was like uh, sort of the mid-era Captain Beefheart stuff where... Mm-hmm. Things get very slow and sexy, and he's just rolling around in there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, There's something great, like about the, you know, she's definitely coming from jazz, mm. absolutely. But there's something. There's just a really. It's like a great period of of um, I guess you know, it was made in England of um, English rock. You know, where a lot of the players on that record kind of they're all kind of rock guys but there's this i don't know just the way they play is so fantastic in the feel um yeah really really brilliant and i i really uh when we just we just did hubris live in london recently and yeah i consciously for part three asked Mats gustafsson to play sax and i think i i referenced the sax players on extremes and i was like this is how i want you to play you know? <laughs> and he was like he knew them all they're, they're, a lot of them are quite obscure players you know and he's like whoa no one's ever asked me to play like that okay <laughs> you know and uh it was really yeah we we had a ball we really did yeah did mm. did Mats enjoy uh the opportunity to play like that he he he's like a pig in shit <laughs> <laughs> He was so good. Yeah, there's a video of it on YouTube, and um, it was really, really ecstatic. I mean, it just got more and more insane, and I thought I was going to kill him. Like, I was worried because it just he just really went for it, and then it just went from there, you know. And 20 minutes later, I was like, I better stop this because he might die. <laughs> he really threw himself into it. So that was super fun. Yeah. I mean, I can imagine the end of Hubris doing that. Uh, I think as a listener, I get to the last few minutes. I'm like, there's a long time to go, and this feels very untenable. <laughs> playing that live, I mean, do you... Uh, what a nebulous question, but do you find go that you go into that state often where, you know, Matt's is kind of on the perimeter of something perhaps motherly perhaps not <laughs> not heading in a great not heading in a great direction but you know yeah. where things can happen yeah yeah i mean to be honest we've only done it once and in london at cafe otto in may 
for the, this festival. And it was absolutely, you know, more exactly what I wanted it to be, you know, what, what I imagined in my head, you know, um, and then some, you know, and, uh, I wish we could do it more. We all had a ball and it was this sort of collective, just this collective ecstatic experience. And I really feel that the audience had the same feeling that, that we did playing it. Um, but it's kind of, yeah, it, it is like, whoa, this is, we're really pushing this thing, which is exactly what I want. I really want to, <laughs> with that piece, just really just go there and push and push and push till it just can't go any further, you know? Hmm. And then, yeah, my partner, Chris actually says, stop, you know, and <laughs> she walked up to my mixer and turned me off. Cause it was just the only way to end the thing, you know? <laughs> <laughs> wow. So I'm getting the picture that at the age of 12, 13, you're really pushing into some strange territories as <laughs> someone who listens to music. Did you have many friends who were doing the same thing at that time? I had a few um, growing up. Yeah. Well, like, yeah, I remember, yeah, I absolutely remember sitting and listening to Off Ramp with two of my close friends from school, you know. Hmm. Definitely, yeah. But I, I kind of always took things a bit too far or got into things just, you know, really deeply um obsessively yeah body caught at the wrists help amazing sting the twisting thrusts to the rhythmic beats like the sound of a whip drowning in the waves of sensation Abandoning yourself to the abstract contact takes him closer to his senses. So let's go to your final record now, so Godly and Cream. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me about why this one made it on the list, why it's important to you? Well, I guess I picked that one because I was just thinking about production and I love the idea of, you know, pop music that is really really experimental and somehow you know can appeal to you as a pop listener like someone might listen to those records those 10 cc records well many people most people probably just as pop records you know and that's how they remember oh, that was a good song i remember that or you know that kind of thing mm. but then when you really listen to it it's kind of absolutely bonkers what they're doing <laughs> in the studio you know yeah and um, that's just a really good example of, of a record like that. Um, I like the idea of, of this sort of hidden, you know, hidden complexity or layers of things that are going on that aren't, you, you can kind of not notice them because you're just listening to it as a song-based record. But if you really listen, there's a lot of absolutely insane stuff happening all the time and just really, really, really experimental you know, that really appeals to me in some ways more than just listening to an experimental quote unquote record, you know? Mm. So I don't know. I could have picked many 10 CC related records, but I picked that one probably because yeah, the last few years I've been really listening to it again, pretty obsessively. I did, you know, I remember I did have the, I'm not in love seven inch when I was really young, like six or five when it came out. <laughs> But to me, it was just a beautiful pop song that was on the radio all the time. And you kind of listen to it and go, oh, actually, all that ambient sound is all their voices being played on tape at various speeds to create chords, you know, lush chords and all these things that are just in there that you just don't realize until you grow up. <laughs> <laughs> and so was this another one that you discovered... I mean, around the same time as the other records you picked it? Actually, no, much later. Uh -huh. um, I was more aware of 10CC, but the Godly and Cream records, I remembered the hit, the first track. I remember seeing the video clip for that when I was really, really young on TV in Australia. And it was very odd. <laughs> um, 
um, it was a very odd film clip. They yeah. actually made a lot of really famous uh, music clips. They would do that too, Godly and Cream. Um, a lot of Peter Gabriel uh, film clips and things like that. But um, I remember that track, but I didn't have the album actually until much later. Yeah. Like that record and the they made a box set called Consequences, which is the first thing they did after they left. They split from 10CC. And it's super, super self-indulgent 3LP <laughs> box set. Initially, they started to make that record. They had this thing called a Gizmatron, which was kind of like a prototype, kind of like an Ebo, where where uh, it would you would have infinite sustain on a guitar, but it was actually done from motors that were placed onto the guitar strings, and the strings would just um, it would just excite the strings, and you could just play different chords. And so I think initially, consequences was going to be like a showcase record for the Gizmatron. And then it kind of mutated into this three LP <laughs> over the top uh, box set that totally bombed. Cause it was just kind of difficult and, and really, really self-indulgent. But the first, the first disc sides A and B on that box set is absolutely, absolutely phenomenal. Like it could be a GRM record, you know, Wow. Um, I really recommend checking that out. I would have picked that, but yeah, if I'm going to pick one of their more song-based records, yeah, definitely Freeze Frame. So when you think back to listening to this record when you first discovered it, where are you? Are you like listening to it on headphones in a particular place? Are you, you know, what's the kind of memories that come bundled with listening to this record? The memories are definitely, as you said, that I ha- I can see all of us sitting, my old apartment in Melbourne, sitting around on the couch listening to this record and just having our minds blown. You know, <laughs> one thing uh, Chris and I love doing is having people over, having cocktails, and having fr- close friends over and just listening to records, and usually they tend to be wacky, odd records. And, and that was definitely one of them that we listened to um, probably, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, um, over and over in our apartment in Melbourne with friends. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So you have basically like a kind of listening party. So everyone just comes around, you, you sit around, you have drinks and, and listen to me. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, I used to do that growing up with my friends after school or on the weekends, but it's kind of like a lost, you know, these days it's, it's kind of like a lost thing where, you know, we don't really have time and a lot of people don't even listen to albums. They just listen to a track. Mm. And, um, I love the idea of collective listening and you kind of listen to it in a different way, like probably more focused actually, or you hear things you wouldn't hear normally. And it's just a, beautiful fun way to listen to stuff and yeah i've said this a few times one thing i really love is in japan there's there's a thing called a jazz kisa which is a a jazz well cafe uh bar where you sit at a counter and there's like a, a very small bar that fits probably you know five six eight people or so and you sit at the counter and the guy who's running the place has his his or her record collection behind the bar and a pretty good stereo system. And somebody picks a record to listen to. And all the people in the bar, all the customers might not even know each other. But um, you'll pick a record. I remember being in Kyoto many, many years ago, and there was an Albert Isla record that I I had not heard before and this guy had it at the bar. So I chose that, you know, and we sat there and no one talked and everyone just had their drink and listened to the whole record. And the guy would flip the record over and he'd hear side two. And it was such a beautiful, profound, but really simple thing, you know, and um, I love that. So, and a lot of, uh, a lot of jazz musicians in Japan, 
you know, didn't have access to records because they were expensive. And so a lot of them actually would go to these places to hear, you know, records that they couldn't get a hold of in those days. And now there's bars that, you know, will have just progressive rock or just uh, <laughs> classical music or, yeah, there's really quite specific places for, for stuff like that. So that's one, one thing I used to love about going to Japan, just to do that, actually, with friends. So doing, the, doing it at home, wasn't like, it's not like a conscious thing, hey, everybody, we're going to come over and listen to records, but it would just sort of happen. We'd have people over and it was just like, of course, we're going to listen to a record while we hang out. Do you uh, recall any of the reactions that came from people with you when you were listening to Freeze Frame a lot? Um, lots of laughing, you know, lots <laughs> yeah. of um, shaking your head going, holy, how's, how are they doing this? This is insane. You know, what the <laughs> hell? <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's interesting. I was reading about it. A lot of the stuff that they were doing, you made reference to that. Gizmetron. Yes, thank you, mm-hmm. that they developed. But kind of like a also doing like a primitive harmonizer thing as well yeah yep yep which is way ahead of the time it is but they're kind of very elusive like i read a couple of interviews with them and anytime someone asked them about that record they just said oh we smoked we were smoking a lot of weed when we made that record you know (laughs) yes i've heard (laughs) that yeah (laughs) but i think they're doing a lot more than that i mean i don't mean drugs i just mean yeah, it's just crazy, the amount of experimentation and, and just the editing. And, yeah, it's just genius. They were they were absolutely amazing, those guys. Like the first four 10cc records are just unbelievable for that kind of thing. One of the things that I saw as well written about it was that they kind of, on Brasilia, they used a, almost like an exquisite corpse kind of thing where they all... Yeah, that's right. ...recorded their parts that's separately right. and uh, yep. didn't hear what yep. the other people did. Um, which is and and then put it together and went what the hell have we made as a collective um yeah are there there ways that you impose any sort of creative limitations on yourself or generate certain setups to sort of funnel your instincts through in order to you know in, in a in a similar kind of way to that absolutely um yeah a lot of times i'll throw things together from almost like different things that are completely unrelated. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a Zappa track from, um, what album is it on? I think it's called rubber shirt, the track and it's from, um, shaky booty. That's right. And he, he has a Terry Bozio, like playing drums from one gig. And then he has a bass player, playing another track from another gig and they're absolutely <laughs> unrelated and he puts them on top of each other and it's so incredible it sounds like it sounds like they're playing together it really does but but the way they're playing which is it would just never you'd never play that way if you were playing together you know and um i do a lot of things like that too where yeah just grab things from different sessions that are unrelated and put them together and just see you know when the pieces fall down what it looks like you know and i might not necessarily use that but sometimes i have though but it might actually just push me into an area where i would never think to go otherwise you know Mm. and um i love that because it's kind of like a lot of musicians when they play together they play together or they play in a certain way where you know certain cliches happen certain you know you just fall into traps that you fall into um because you've been playing a particular way for so long so things like that hopefully yeah doing something like that you create some you can create something that you would just never (laughs) be able to create otherwise you know yeah i love that i remember i made a pop record years ago with with an old friend of mine and a lot of times because it was a studio project um, and there was only two of us, like building tracks up from scratch um, was kind of difficult because we weren't a band per se. So he had me, he'd, he had me sit at the drum kit and he'd put headphones on me and he'd, he had all these tracks. He went to like a, 
like a Salvation Army or something and bought like Glenn Campbell cassettes and all these different things. And he'd put, he just quickly play a track to me that I'd not heard before that he didn't know what it was going to be. And I'd play drums over it as best as I could kind of sort of, you know, anticipating that the chorus is coming or, or whatever play like that. And then we'd not hear the original track at all or even know it. It was just that one time. And then we would build uh, songs around the way I played the drums. And a lot of times the drum fills that I was doing had nothing to do with, you know, where, <laughs> where the chord progression was or where the one was, so to speak. But it made it really odd and it made it really unusual, you know. And I would never have played drums to those tracks that way, to the, to the finished track that way, if we didn't start it that way in the first place, you know? So I love, I love stuff like that. Wow. That reminds me of those recent performances that Mark Fell was doing where he'd feed a complex rhythmic pattern to a player on headphones and they'd have to try and keep up. And you'd Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just yeah, actually, I have, a, I have a record that just came out with, with a guy, Martin, Martin, mm, and it's um, <clears throat> with an ensemble. And a lot of the pieces is the ensemble listening to our music in headphones and trying to emulate it. And it's completely electronic and trying to emulate it as best as they can on their, on like a violin or, or, you know, vibraphone or whatever. Um, <clears throat> that's an interesting exercise for wow. sure. The uh, pop record that you made reference to, is that out there available to, to listen to? Yeah, that, that was a project called Sun, S-U-N, and um, ages ago, maybe, I don't know, 20 years ago. Wow. <laughs> and um, we made two albums, yeah back in the day great (laughs) (laughs) and uh, a final question on this godly and cream record is Mm -hmm. is there a a favorite track on this album for you Mm, i love the last track get well soon in particular Mm. something about the atmosphere of that track is really beautiful and, and the percussion and um and Paul McCartney does vocals on there, so that's a, yeah. that's a bonus. Are you a, a Beatles fan? Of course. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, the earliest memories of listening to music would have been the Beatles, for sure. My uh, wife and I watched Hard Day's Night, actually, the other day. She hadn't seen it. Uh, Isn't it fantastic? I thought it was, it's amazing. Uh, yeah. She was like, what are they doing? Uh, yeah. It's odd, but... Uh, it's really odd. The humour is so fantastic in that y- film. Yeah. Yes. It's funny. It's, um, it feels like something that resembles English humour, although it's... Absolutely. Not anything that I recognise. I think it must be specifically a Liverpool thing. <laughs> yeah, and it's coming from, you know, that... that tradition of the goons and you know sure that whole world for sure yeah it's really great it's really absurd i love it am i the only one tuned in to luxembourg tonight do they only program music to accompany my car lousy words and drab percussion fading in and out of Russian, I haven't got the strength to turn it on. Well, Oren, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your own record, your new record, Simeon Angel, and also the three records that you've picked here. This has been great fun. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. So if people want to keep pace with what you're doing, is there a best place for them to go on the internet? Mm, probably probably my website which i don't update very often but yeah (laughs) great because i'm always playing shows and usually they're on there usually nice and that's orinamabarchi.com isn't it yeah or my twitter actually i usually announce things on on there cool well thanks once again to everyone listening i'll see you next time Bye bye